This is Blade Method Mindset, episode 52, with Mike Harrington. I'm absent my partner, JP, today simply because he has a home inspection he saw in his house and it got scheduled right during this time, so he had to go do that. Uh, no worries, though. We're going to wrap up episode two um, with Mike. So if you guys haven't listened to episode 51, uh, we've got um, that, which was a fantastic episode that has gotten a lot of positive feedback. So go back and listen to that one before uh, listening to this one, because you'll want to hear everything that went on there. But uh, we just came off uh, weightlifting or uh, powerlifting meet that we talked about last episode. Um, Mike just competed in. So we're going to recap that a little bit because we've got the... Uh, USPL United States Powerlifting State Championships here in a few weeks. So um, this was kind of a tune-up meet before that to see what we were able to do. And uh, Mike was going after some state records, weren't you, Mike? Yes, I was. I I had hopes of uh, getting them all back on uh, a week ago Sunday, but it didn't work out that way. Yeah, it rarely works out that way. When yeah. you're going after three records, it could have. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was just a few things here and there, and uh, I was not there. I was traveling uh, to California with uh, my family for a wedding for Claire's cousin and was unable to be there, but we had Coach Gerald go with you, and uh, he did a great job. He did. did um, a very good it was job. his first time kind of coaching and helping at a powerlifting meet, and uh, so... When that happens, um, and if I'm not there to kind of oversee everything and make sure everything's exactly the way it needs to be, then sometimes we make a couple mistakes. Um, but, you know, you got the, uh, the, we thought we tied the squat. What you're saying is, as of this morning, you, have not, you did not tie the squat state record. Did not tie the squat. I thought I did, but did not. Well, we'll get it this next time. And then you would have tied it had you squatted low enough, but you were just just about a quarter inch high on that third squat. Exactly. I would have actually taken the stake record. On that last on one. On that last one. Uh, and squatted high, which is my nemesis at the moment. I, I, it went up real easy, but I just didn't get down high, uh, low enough. And, you know, at 81 years old, I think a lot of people listening to this can understand that, you know, the flexibility required to squat below parallel doesn't come easy. You know, I get a lot of people in their early 30s, late 20s coming into the gym where they've been leading a sedentary life and they just haven't had to squat that low because toilets are at 90 degrees, couches are at 90 degrees, their office chairs at 90 degrees. Why squat below parallel, you know? And so they have lost that ability. Whereas if you look at a baby, an infant, like I was in the park with my daughter last night, eight months old, perfect squat, 81 years old, (laughs) not exercising for, you know, years and years and years coming in at 77 and starting it takes a while to get that squat back. You well, know? it took me a year to get below parallel with uh, an air squat. Exactly. And, and, and not consistently, occasionally below parallel. <laughs> so. When we started, exactly, we were squatting the barbell to parallel, just about. Right. Yeah, the barbell <laughs> kind of helped 
uh, counterbalance that a little bit. So it's been a long road coming. Yeah. And then our training session this morning, you were, you know, below parallel with 56 kilos for several reps, which is a huge, huge progress. You know, right. for someone to go from 77 years old, just starting a sport and a lot of expert or uh, expert, so-called experts out there in our field will say that that's just not possible, you know, right. and we've proven that, you know, four years later, 81 years old, now you're squatting heavier and deeper than you ever have in your life. Exactly. Which is a huge testament to you and your work ethic, but also Ooh. just uh, that what we're doing works. Flexibility, yeah, that's the key. And the uh, stronger you get, the more flexible you get. I hope so. I, I, I'm making progress, and I'm happy with it. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the squat, and then we have the second move of uh, power lift. The second lift is the bench press um, and nailed your opener. Tied the state record with your second lift. And then... Then I posted... <laughs> I was supposed to post 57.5 for the third lift, which would have been a state record. But I posted or requested a 67.5 third lift. And the score gave me a funny look like, are you sure or what are you doing? Yeah. Nobody does that. Nobody, nobody jumps up like... 12 kilos not even if you're you know not even if you're benching 150 kilos no. do you jump 12 usually, usually you don't do that yeah. right but i didn't catch it and i was just so excited because the second lift went up so easy i thought oh i got this i got this third lift no question about it yeah you know the 57 and a half for those of you you know that don't do kilos that's uh about 125 pounds and or 126 and then right. you know so he jumped to 67 and a half kilos so our target was 126 pounds 67 kilos is 146 pounds so way above uh where we wanted to be way above yeah, yeah. um but you lowered it I, I, when they, you got when, it to the chest. Yeah, when they lifted it off, I thought, what in the hell is this? This is really, what happened? And I, there's no way I could push it up. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, I just made a mistake. Got too excited and made a mistake. But the reason I went to the meet was a, for a learning experience, and I, I learned. I never did that before. I'll never do that again. Yeah. And it's one of those things that had I been there, probably could have avoided that. Right. Um, not that that's Gerald's fault, because he just didn't know that no. that's what was being put down. He trusted you right. that you were going to go in there and put in the right number. But it happened. It's all good. Tied the state record. That's not the record or the meat that counted anyways. Right. So we move on to the deadlift, which in a powerlifting meet, that's the third lift that you perform. And, you know, it, by this time, by the time you're performing the deadlift, you know, you're fairly fatigued. Um, there's a lot of, of adrenaline and waiting and warming up and cooling down that takes place over a few hours. And so uh, the deadlift technically is the easiest lift to execute. But again, there's the fatigue factor that has to play a role. And uh, you were able to come out and really excel. Yeah. So kind of threw a switch up. I texted Gerald when it was happening and said, hey, 
let's start a little heavier and try to go for the state record on the second lift. Right. And if he gets it awesome, decide whether or not, let him decide if he's got enough energy to take that third lift because the last regional, the USPL regional that we're at, uh, by that third deadlift, you were pooped. Right. You know, of course, that meet was at night, you know, and this one was right. in the morning when we like to lift. So went out there, first lift, nailed it. Right. Second lift, nailed new, it. New state record. New on the state second record, movement. which is 115 kilos. 115. 253 pounds for those of you that don't do kilos again. And then I was pumped to yeah. hear you came out for that third lift. Yeah, I... I felt really good and went up and did 117 and a half for another new state record. Almost 260 pounds. Right. Um, which is just, you know, thinking back again, we, you know, four years ago doing 165 pounds. 165, right. Yeah. I mean, 100 I haven't put 100 pounds on my deadlift in the past four years. <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody does. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, to put 100 pounds on your deadlift in four years is remarkable for a 30-year-old or a 28-year-old, yeah. uh, someone in the prime of their strength-growing life. Uh, to do it from 77 to 81 years old is spectacular. It's a marvel. It's re- because a lot of people lifting and powerlifting your age grew up powerlifting right. or at least have a base and right. now they're at the end of their sport and they're kind of just doing it as a carry-on yeah. you know i enjoy it i want to do it and they used to deadlift 500 pounds oh, yeah, yeah. but now at 80 they're deadlifting 200 right. 250 pounds right. whereas you know you started way lower in older age and now even older age you're putting on that kind of weight which is yeah. uh just phenomenal yeah, they're all dropping down in in weight too. They're they're coming down from two twenty, two hundred pounds. Their body weight. Their body weight. Yeah. So a guy that used to lift at two twenty is now lifting at one hundred sixty five pounds. Scrawny guy now. Yeah, well, yeah. they're they're wasting away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but most of those guys are really great deadlifters. They can't bench. They can't bench the bar. Some of them. Because of injury, injury, and, oh, yeah, injuries, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the squat goes away too, I guess, with age. Mm-hmm. For those guys, what what it is is the shoulder joint and the hip joint. Yeah. They're the two, and I've said, you know, I say this in kind of our our honing school, our beginning when we teach people movements is those are the two most mobile joints in the human body. They're ball and socket joints. That means they're the most injury prone, you know, so when you load up the shoulder for years and years and years and years and years, and we're talking about loading it with compound lifts and you load up the hips for years and years and years and the knees, um, you know, they sometimes don't hold up to what you want them to do. And that's why people don't squat. People don't bench, but deadlift, you can usually keep deadlifting. Yeah. And they do. Yeah. So what did you think? I mean, um, you know, did, did you feel like you were in good shape? Because, you know, we're talking about your lifts from four years ago, but your body, too. You know, when we pull up pictures of us standing side by side, yeah. you look better today than you looked then. Oh, no question about it. I, I, I've i dropped almost 20 pounds yeah. in, in four years. Of, and, uh, of and fat. You've ga- of fat, and yeah. you've gained muscle, so probably even no more question, than that. No question about it, no. Nah. I mean, you had a little tire iron or a oh, spare yeah. tire around yeah. you, a little belly, a little yeah. pudgy face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's all gone. I mean, you're svelte. 
Right. You know, right. you should get a suit tailored for you now. Yeah, I need a suit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Zoot suit with yeah. peg pants. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, you're around with the zoot suits. <laughs> um, you know, and so I think that, you know, that I posted something the other day on our Instagram account about how, you know, it's a misnomer in our culture that sports should die off with age. Yeah. That once you become 30, 40, 50 years old, that, oh, well, you're just done competing. Right. And I just think that that's one of the worst messages that we can put out to our aging population is that, no, that's when you can start. You know, when you're, when you, especially when you're done raising your kids and doing that and you've got more time, especially when you're done, um, you know, competing in your corporate structure or building your business or whatever that is, um, that you had to do your whole life that took up the majority of your time. Now you can start competing at whatever it is, powerlifting, fencing, um, whatever that sport is you want to take up. I met a lady uh, when I was at Ruskin's last weightlifting meet, national weightlifting meet, and the U.S. National Fencing Championships were going on, and this lady that I met in the elevator was 50-some years old and it, competing at nationals, and she took it up because her daughter started doing it, and mm-hmm. her daughter got a scholarship and that whole thing. But, you know, that, that's, that's awesome to hear those stories that as we age, if you can get into something and be passionate about it, you can really improve yourself. Exactly. Physically, mentally, yeah. stay sharp, the whole thing. Right. So speak to some of those benefits. Uh, well, the other thing is if you're competitive in business like I felt I was uh, and, and you no, no longer have a competitive situation in life when you retire, for me, getting another competitive situation is very beneficial. I need a goal. I always have goals uh, and achievable goals, but hard goals. They've got to be hard, but they've got to be achievable. And it's fun to work toward a goal. It gives you a reason to get up in the morning, get out of the house, do something. And this powerlifting gives me that goal. I feel good about that. Makes me feel good to achieve uh, a state record or tie a state record, set a state record. So it's very beneficial to me. I, I love that. And I hope people will listen to that and take that to heart that, you know, and they start before 77. Right. You know, um, no matter how crazy your wife thinks you are. Yeah, crazy. Your wife of 50 plus <laughs> years. Um, you know, and so that, you know, that can be hard if, if you know, your wife's not on the complete same page. But I think you guys have been married so long oh, that yeah. she just lets you do whatever you oh, want to yeah. do. Oh, absolutely. Go hunt for gold. Right. Go uh, power lift. Whatever you want to do, she's going to let go, you go do. Go chase forest fence treasure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be a treasure hunter. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and so uh, when you spoke about being competitive in business and then needing that competition, um, I can tell with how comp- competitive you are now and how goal-oriented you are because, and you say achievable, sometimes you give me things that you want to do that I'm like, okay, we got to slow the roll right, a little right. bit, Mike. Um, but again, who would have thought that we'd be doing a 15-minute plank you right, know, that we'll right. talk about later on in the episode? So, um, you know, I, I can see your past, you know, your history come out in you today yeah. still, you know, which is really cool. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, I know we talked about your business um, a little bit last episode, but 
I want to. Sometimes you tell me about the steel industry and the competitive nature there and how it was back then. About um, everyone was making the same product. Right. It was who the, who you liked the most, and so I think that uh, that's still relative to a lot of business owners today. So tell about that. Well, I was in a a niche in the steel business called cold finished bars and cold heading quality wire. But in the bar business, a cold finished bar is like a loaf of bread. Uh, there's not too much difference between Wonder Bread and Tasty Bread. They're both poisonous, but yeah. Yeah, they're both poisonous. <laughs> but the way, and, and incidentally, at that, back in the 60s, when I got in the steel business in 1966, at that time, prices were fixed. It was an oligopoly, a big oligopoly. There were about five major producers, many, 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 many small producers like, like the business I was in. But the big guys fixed the prices. There was no question about that. They say they didn't, but they had a published price, and everybody sold at that price. Is that so, what came out on the stock market? Or no. If it's a commodity, how is it fixed? Uh, U.S. Steel would decide what the price of flat-rolled flat rolled steel was, and Bethlehem and Inland and all the other producers would agree. They would all publish the same price. They had a price book, uh, a price list, if you will. Everybody, everybody's price was the same. And they would not cut the price. They, uh, believe me, they would not. Even to huge buyers, huge automotive buyers, uh, they may have gotten some kind of concessions, some kind of economic concessions, maybe terms, maybe uh, consignment kind of thing, but... The price was the price, and the, and the steel industry used to argue that it was unlawful for them to cut the price. Uh, the Taft-Hartley Act, they, they used to quote, we can't give you a price advantage. It's against the law. And they got away with it for 50 years, 100 years. So how do you sell a product with a fixed price and no product differentiation? You couldn't tell the difference between my, my one-inch round 12L14 and the guy down the street. Same product, same price. How do you get the order? You do it on friendship. You do it on friendship. I had a sales manager who dreamt up all kinds of crazy ideas, ideas to differentiate ourselves from the rest of the pack, and it had to do with entertainment, basically. He ran a derby party, Kentucky Derby party. We had 32 tickets to the derby. We would take 32 people to the derby every year. <laughs> customers. Customers. Oh, yeah. yeah, customers. So is that out of one company that you're looking to buy from you, or is that multiple companies? Oh, many, many companies in many, many cities. Uh, we would fly everybody to Cincinnati, Ohio. We'd have uh, put them up in the Cuvier Press Club, which was a... Uh, a private club. Uh, we would that would be our headquarters. We'd have card games. We'd have music. We'd take a bus down to Louisville on Derby Day. It was basically well. It was golf on Thursday, handicap on Friday, Derby on Saturday. Sunday was a recovery day, and you'd go <laughs> home Sunday afternoon. It was a big deal. And, oh man, that and so that's 1970, 68, 70, uh, somewhere in there. That was 70. in the yeah late late sixties through about through nineteen seventy five. I went 
I kept going. I went to about 25 derbies. Uh, After that, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, went every, I fell in love with it and went every year. I, I moved from that company to Chicago and had my own little derby party. I didn't have any tickets, but I would scrounge up a couple dozen tickets or a dozen tickets and take people down there. But at that time, uh, selling in the steel business was all about entertaining, basically. You had to, the buyer had to like you. There's no other reason to buy from you. Everybody yeah. had the same stuff. So, so you get a buyer to like you, you take him to the Derby, or you take him to the Derby every year, or does one time get you a customer for 10 years? Well, uh, if he was a good guy, we'd take him every year, and there were a few, a few of them. But I remember one year we had so much business. Business was so good in the early 70s. Everybody did. We decided we would take 32 people who, under no circumstances, could give us an order. Impossible for them to buy from us. Just friends, family. So it was like an anti-sales trip. But mm -hmm. we had to take the trip. Yeah. But uh, people that went to the Derby never forgot it. We, it, was a, it was a marvelous experience. So that... So when you say you had to take the trip because you had it budgeted and you needed to spend the money for taxes? No, or? no, 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 because we wanted to. Okay. We yeah. wanted for our benefit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> to make it through the year. Right well, on. We, we, we had to take these people to, to go and get, you know, and pay our way, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, that just, that, that's so awesome. And so, and I know that that probably wasn't the only trip of the year. I'm sure there were smaller ones that you did, oh, I going did. fishing. I, or... I, oh, we went, I used to take people to Bimini. We'd fly nonstop from Cleveland, from a small airport near Cleveland, into Bimini. What's that? That's an island in the Bahamas, oh. a small island. I had a de Havilland jet available to me from a, the corporate office. I remember taking people on what I call a magic trip. They didn't know where they were going. I'd tell them to bring such and such kind of clothes, bring golf clubs. We're not telling you where you're going. Just show up at uh, Cuyahoga County Airport at such and such a time. And when you get there, you can call home and tell them where you are. <laughs> it was just fun things like that. Uh, just, just try to find a different way to have fun. It was kind of... It was amazing, really, that uh, that's the way it was. And so then you started your own company. So that was when you were working for a company, correct? I was, I was working for uh, the Hoover Ball and Bearing Company out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, and I wanted to build a, steel, a similar steel mill in, in the Chicago area. There was a huge market there, and there was a need for another plant there. I tried to convince my my employer to allow me to do it for them, and they they didn't want to do it. Uh, the rate of return on the investment I proposed was too low for them. So I decided to do it on my own, and I went out and got two guys who had the money. I didn't have the money to do it. We formed a company. Uh, I put up. $30,000, they put up 170000 and we borrowed $12 million on their credit. Wow. And I spent $12 million building a plant. <laughs> uh, 
which is 1975. 1976. 1976, so that's $50 million. At least. Yeah. But anyway, we, I started from nothing, uh, bought all the equipment, uh, hired all the people, installed all the systems, and started it up. It was a lot of fun, a lot of work. No more derby parties. No more derby parties for four or five and years. Jets. No jets, no nothing. <laughs> it was just work. <laughs> but that's the price of ambition, right? I mean, yeah. you know, when you want to do your own thing and you've got an idea and you want to see it through, you kind of got to make some, right. give it, up some stuff. It turned out uh, to be a bad move on my part because... Uh, these two guys who were my partners that when we started to succeed significantly, we are going to make big money in the early 80s. Uh, they decided they didn't need me anymore, so they bought me out. Yeah. Not your decision. Not, I have no control. A minority yeah. stockholder has no control. Yeah. Uh, I, I just trusted them. I, I thought they would not do that. I, obviously, I, I knew of the exposure. I, you know, I'd been, I, I knew what my risk was, but I trusted them, and yeah. that was that was bad. I, if I had stayed with the other company, uh, my career would have been totally different, obviously, but uh, it turned out not good for me or, yeah. or my family financially, mm-hmm. strictly financially. It was fun, fun, fun to do whatever the hell you want in business, install whatever system you want, that was the fun part, to see that succeed. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's done. It's over. Oh, yeah. Long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know how that goes. So, um, you know, so you went from there in, you know, talking about the derby and the horse and you love the horse racing. You did that for you owned horses. I did. I uh, when we moved from uh, the Cleveland area to, to the Chicago area, we moved way out west of town, about 50 miles west. I bought five acres, a new house, uh, built a 36 by 60 barn, which is it was a seven-stall barn. Uh, eventually, we filled it up. We had seven horses, two pastures, you know, five acres. Uh, the horses were... Uh, show horses. My daughters, both daughters, were riders. Uh, in uh, they rode hunters and jumpers at that time. First one started in pony club, and she she was a really good equitation rider. And years and years later, she won uh, some big events in as a junior rider. Uh, she didn't get to the top of the junior class because you need a couple hundred thousand dollar horse to yeah. be, at, be at the top of the game. But she was a good equitation rider. And that rider. comes through breeding. Well, it, it come, you, you buy, you buy the, the best horse and, and win. But most of those events are judged on the horse. But th- there's one class called equitation that's judged on the rider. And she was... Uh, National Pony Club champion one year, Equitator. She did it on a cheap horse, like a twenty thousand dollar horse. All the other kids were riding two, three hundred thousand dollar horses. Wow! And that's in the eighties. That would have been er- real early eighties, yeah. Man, so it's still that way. You have yeah. to have you have to have the horse flesh to win. 
Yeah, but I'm just equating the dollar amount. Yeah. You know, that's that's a lot of money. Well, they sh- they showed for years and years. Uh, we had a motorhome and a trailer, and a couple of years, my wife would leave with the kids. We had three kids. They she'd leave after school was out, June middle of June, and be gone till Labor Day. <laughs> really. With the Winnebago. With the Winnebago and the trailer and go from show to show to show. That's not cheap. No. No, it wasn't. uh, uh, (laughs) And you're not winning a lot of money. There's no money in it. There's no, (laughs) there's money, but to win a a class was a hundred bucks, let's say. But it cost 80 bucks to enter the class and (laughs) 8,000 to get there, you know, with training and, you know, there's training and all kinds of stuff. But uh, that's similar to CrossFit. I mean, our sport, you know, I mean, you you compete because you love to compete, you know, and you spend a couple hundred bucks to get in. And then if you win, you'll make your money back, you know, plus something, you know. And so it's not we never do this because we're going to make money. We do it because it's our passion and we enjoy it and we enjoy what it gives us. Yeah. Right. But you so, spend a lot more money to get that feeling. Right. <laughs> but at that time, at that time, I uh, I got into the thoroughbred business because we had the facility. I bought uh, a Marion foal uh, in Illinois and brought her home. She had the foal at my house. I halter broke the foal myself, uh, which means you put a hauler on them and lead them around, get them to the point of handling. I, I went out there every day and handled them, talked to them. I used to tell them... Unbroken horse. Unbroken. Ba- yeah. Baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I weaned... You know, we took the mare away after, I think, six months, wean them. They could get a little goofy when you wean them. But I used to go out there and talk to them and tell them the only difference between him and Walter Payton was in his head. He had all the physical attributes of a running horse, but he had to want to run. You told the horse that? I told the horse that. Did you listen? <laughs> he didn't hear me, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> but anyway, I, I trained him, and we took him to the track, and uh, he didn't do much. His name, was, his name was Big Numbers. That's where I got the, Oh, yeah, your email. My email, Big Numbers. <laughs> but... Uh, anyway, I, I had a couple more horses. I, I had three or four I fold, bred, it, bred and fold at home. The most promising one I had, I had a mare that won about $50,000 in allowance company at Arlington Park. And then I, bred, I took her down to uh, uh, Lexington, Kentucky and bred her to the, the second crop of Northern Dancer. Oh, okay. Northern that's, Dancer. That's a, I recognize that name. Northern Dancer was a very prolific uh, 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 stallion. Yeah. But a great racehorse. He won the Triple Crown. Yeah, okay. Won the Derby. You know, right. Back out in the 40s, but uh, nah, maybe it was the 50s. But in his second crop, there there was this, this horse. What the hell was his? I can't remember his name at the moment. But I bred. At that time, he was 24 years old. When a stallion is 24 years old, they shoot a lot of blanks, and they don't. <laughs> <laughs> their production, the, the production of their foals goes way down, but also the stud fee goes down. Northern Dancer probably had a stud fee in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right, right after he right, won the Triple Crown. Right after he won the Triple Crown. 
This guy stood for 2,500, I think. At 24 years old? Yes, at 24 years old. That's still... That's per sample, right? Or, no, it's guaranteed live full. Okay. Guaranteed live full. What's that? Explain that. That means you, you, you take the horse uh, to the breeding farm, and they breed the horse. They breed repeatedly till the horse is, till your mare is pregnant. They confirm the horse is pregnant. You take the mare home. When she foals and the and the the foal stands and nurses, that's a live foal. Okay. And at that point, your stud fee is is due. Wow. If if she aborted or the foal died at birth, there's no stud fee. Oh, okay. So it's guaranteed live foal. Uh, in this case, uh, anyway, the the foal was beautiful, and and the 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 mama, you know, the mare had one fifty grand, which is not a lot, but she could run. She had a lot of heart, uh, and the foal had good conformation. Looked like he, he was he was short coupled, looked like a quarter horse almost. But Northern Dancer was short coupled. He was uh, looked quarter horse ish. He was short. He was. Fifteen, two, or three, which is short. Yeah, but that doesn't play well to racing. I mean, you want those long, tall horses. Well, you do in long, but if you've got the heart, incidentally, it's all about heart in the yeah. horse racing business, and literally the size of the heart. Yeah, the, the physical heart. The yeah, physical not just heart. The metaphorical. No. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, who was it? Secretariat had a twenty-four pound heart. <laughs> Twenty, they you know they they cut him open when he died, and a typical thoroughbred will have a twelve to fourteen pound heart. He had a twenty four pound heart, yeah, which pushes blood to those muscles. That's why he ran. He won by thirty one lengths in the Belmont. Incredible mm-hmm. horse. I mean, that's similar to Rich Froning and the champions of our sport, probably of any sport. You know, probably, they, yeah. They, they, that's the speculation is that his heart's just a little bit bigger. Right. Yeah, both physically and, you know, metaphorically. Yeah, so yes, like yes. But anyway, this, this young guy, uh, what, I can't remember what I named him. I named, I named him Zed, Z-E-D, Zed. I like to name horses. I named that guy Zed. And he, 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 I took him to a lady out in Iowa. She, she broke him and legged him up. You know, that means she put 100 gallops in him. She had him galloping five miles, galloping five miles just to leg him up, which means, you know, toughen his yeah, yeah, legs up. Training. Then you give him to a real trainer, trainer, which I did, gave him to a guy who was a leading trainer at Arlington Park, a guy named Frank Schiffner, and, uh, he was coming good. He was just about to do uh, speed work. You know, he's going to do a, a, a three-quarter, like a six-foot-long work, speed work. And one day in his stall, he kicked something in the stall and uh, broke, a, broke a bone in his foot. Oh. Just that was it. You know, it was all over. Retired. Unreal. Retired. Never, never got to the. Uh, incidentally, about fifty percent of the thoroughbreds never start a race. Never start a race due to injury and due to injury, like that. inability, no heart. Net can't run. Don't want. Doesn't want to run. Yeah. Every reason, but you know that's temperament. You know, and yeah. 
you know, my my dogs, Murph and Halo, their dad is a grand champion. Yeah. Amstaff, American Staffordshire Terrier, beautiful dog. Um, multi-time champion. Their mom had won a bunch of competitions. Um, Halo, our girl, was our breeder's number one draft pick. Mm. They ended up having a baby that was allergic. That's why we got Halos, because they had to shut down their kennel. Um, but her brother, Murph... Is a completely different dog. Yeah. Halo wants to work. She'll work for hours and hours and watch you and train, and she's high drive and she wants to run. When I get the leash out, Murph runs out the door. <laughs> same seed, yeah. same parents. Right. You know, but he was their number one. He has an underbite. He's got a crooked tail, not great markings. Mm-hmm. Halo's tail's perfect. She's got great markings, great teeth. It's just, a, it's, it's unreal, you know, that. You could and you could pay two hundred thousand dollars for this stud fee, get your foal, and then all of a sudden <laughs> that horse doesn't want to run. Ah. It's got the best genetics on the planet, but the temperament came out wrong. Right, exactly. Yeah. Strange. So it's a it's a very high risk business, and uh, back when I was in it, uh, I didn't pay income. I was earning pretty big money. I didn't pay income tax for five or six years. Zero. I had too many horse expenses. So how'd that tie into your income? Well, at that time, uh, you could deduct. I was in. I was in the horse business to make money. It was a money-making proposition. My kids were in, in the in the show business to make money, make that hundred bucks. Uh huh. So I deducted. <laughs> I don't think you I, can do that today. I deducted all of their travel expenses, all of the cars and the Winnebago and the trailers and the blah 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 training was tax deductible. You know, the revenue was $1,200 a year and the expenses were 54000 Yeah. Numbers like that. Mm-hmm. But it was legal. Is uh, that st- I don't think you can still do that. You can't do that. Yeah. For some, <laughs> I'm going to get a horse. For some, yeah. uh, for some reason, Ronald Reagan, who was a horseman, uh, he passed a tax cut early in his administration. And one of the... One of the uh, provisions was they invoked the hobby rule in, in the thoroughbred industry. The hobby rule means you have to make money one in seven years. Hmm. You can only deduct expenses to the extent of your revenue, like gambling. Same thing in gambling. You, you can't deduct gambling losses in excess of your gambling winnings. Hmm. So... The thoroughbred industry, it killed a thoroughbred yeah, industry. Yeah, that's what shut it down. Killed them. Yeah. In the peak year, there were 52,000 thoroughbreds born. In the peak year was in the real early 80s. I think last year, the number is something like 29,000. In 2019? Yeah. It cut it in half, and more than half the tracks are closed because... I think it's starting to make a little comeback. Uh, it is because there's uh, gambling at a lot of the tracks. The, mm. the successful tracks have slot machines. They have slot machines, mm. and they subsidize the racing. But the straight racing tracks are in big trouble, like Turf Paradise right here. They almost they were talking about getting uh, slots down there. Uh, if they did, that would revitalize that. Because people were, would just go there and play slot machines all day. They would. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that money would go into the purse structure and allow owners to make more money, you know. So did you break horses 
yourself. I halter broke them. Halter, which means you, 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 you uh, uh, they follow you around on, with a rope uh, tied to their halter. You have to get the halter on them. You yeah, know, yeah, which is hard. Which is hard. I would get in the stall with them, you know, a frisky yeah. uh, yearling. Yeah. And rub them all over, you know, take months and months. That's what I was going to say. It takes so much time because my grand, my uh, oh, yeah. uncle had horses yeah. when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, so I've kind of always loved horses and been fa- especially fascinated with what makes a race horse go and right. what makes them know that they're, they're in a race. Right. Um, but I was uh, at his ranch outside of my hometown and I was on a 27 year old horse running him right across the the front part of he had an old 120 year old stone farmhouse and i was running right out and there was a great metal grate in the yard Mm. and we hit that grate and went down and the horse rolled up on top of me and you know face plant full and my dad had a a unbroken stallion on his arm when that happened Mm. and it just went crazy jumping up and down i mean i thought it was gonna tear him i'm looking from the ground with the horsey and my dad getting drug all over the place and my brother and my uncle running full speed at me um but that's like the recollection i have of an unbroken horse you know being super powerful and dangerous if you're attached to that thing that image is in my mind forever yeah and thoroughbreds are high spirit you know they're high spirited they're they're you know, edgy and uh, I remember one full. Uh, I, I took, I had taken his mama down the road to to wean him. You separate the mare and the fold for about for thirty days to wean him. Uh, and that night, for some stupid reason, I decided to bathe him. I got him out of his stall, put him in the wash rack, and I'm with a hose. I'm I'm rinsing his his legs off. He got PO'd, jumped up, and smacked me right in the forehead. Ooh. And I went down. Oh. And I'm looking up, and he's rearing up. And I, <laughs> I rolled. Stomp you. I, yeah, he was. He was going to do that. He was pissed because I took his mama away. Uh-huh. He knew it. Yeah. You know, I didn't know he knew it, but he knew it. Hmm. Anyway, I rolled out of the way, but you've you got to be very careful around young horses like that. Yeah, imagine doing it. You know, I mean, that's what they did for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're probably a lot better at it than we were. Um, well, right on. I, I just, you know, I, I find that uh, part of your life super fascinating because, um, you know, I, I don't think it's something that you see very often anymore. You know, no, that, that no. takes place, especially with someone that has a full time job and um, is trying to earn a living for their family. So, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so that was in through the 80s and 90s, and I know your daughter is still riding, still a show. I have one daughter, who, Kristen, who uh, lives in Parker, Colorado. She's south of Denver. And she, she was the one that was the, the good rider, and she was really into it and, and is still into it. She has two horses. A uh, couple of years ago, now she does what is called a, a three-day event. It's, it's the Olympic riding. It's dressage, which is a test of the rider, uh, cross country, which is a four or five mile course out in the woods mm. over, over fences and through water, and uh, it's a very exciting event. That's probably pretty fun. It is. And the third event, it's a three-day event, three days, and the third event is stadium jumping, jumping high fences inside a stadium. 
and I think it was four years ago, she was the national amateur owner champion uh, in, in a certain age bracket, I think 40 to 50 year old. Awesome. Amateur owner means you own the horse you're riding. Okay. Many, many professional riders don't own the horse they ride. Mm-hmm. None of the Olympic riders own the horse they ride. Very, very, very rare. Somebody owns the horse, and they hire a professional to ride the horse. So when you own it and ride it, you're doing the expenses, you're everything. doing the dental, you're doing the, yeah. the veterinary. Everything. Yeah, much harder, I'm sure. But she she rides, and she wins. and uh, She was up in Flag uh, last summer at an event, a three-day event. I went up and went up and saw her ride. She's a good rider. She's 52 years old. Excellent rider. So, you know, that ties into, you know, 52 years old and still riding. That ties into the conversation we had earlier about being passionate about something into into your later years, you know. Most people you hear about, females you hear about riding horses or JP's daughter's age who rides horses, you know. And then, like, my cousins rode horses growing up, and it's just something they stopped doing, but she's doing it. And she's probably going to keep doing it until she can't do it anymore. Forever, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's it's something you can do forever, almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to be able to get up on that horse. Um, But if you do it every day... Maybe this skill probably doesn't go away. But riding is, you know, riding at that level is uh, very demanding. She's very fit, very fit. Uh, she does uh, Pilates, too. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that Pilates know, instructor. No, no, she, she just does it. The other daughter is a Pilates. Oh, okay. My other daughter, who lives in L.A., is a Pilates uh, instructor. A real Pilates instructor. The real Pilates instructor, yeah. It, it took, she had to go 500 hours to get her license. That's like yoga, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, yeah, it's it's tough to get a real Pilates instructor or a real yoga instructor because yeah. of some of the things they have to go through. Yeah, yeah you have to write a thesis to get your uh, Pilates license. from. It's from Club Pilates. Yeah, which is kind of the founder. So yeah. if you're not Club Pilates, then you're doing something else. Yeah, it's like a wannabe CrossFit, not a real CrossFit place. Yeah, mm, right. yeah exactly. Well, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's the period of your life with the horses. And um, anything else you got to add to that? Well, just one, one quick thing on handicapping. I got into handicapping when I went to the Derby. I was there when Secretariat won the, oh, wow. the Kentucky Derby. 72? I believe it was 72 or 3. But uh, I got into handicapping, and uh, handicapping is uh, a quantitative thing. If if you study the form, there are all kinds of formulas and, you know, speed ratings and all kinds of quantitative stuff. Which you're a math guy. Which which I love to do. I like to look at a bunch of numbers and try to analyze what's going on. Anyway... I can't think of anything I'd rather not do. <laughs> <laughs> the year uh, 1987, uh, was, uh, the, I, I, I got bought out 1231.86. So 1987, I, took a, I did nothing that year, nothing business-wise, did not work. I decided to take up horse handicapping. Uh, I read a book. By, written by Andy Beyer, who's a world famous handicapper, 
on, on various handicapping systems. I studied handicapping systems for about six weeks. Just studied the systems and watched races. I had a satellite dish at home, uh, early dish. It was called a Bluebird, a big dish, one of those old wired-looking 10, 12-footers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you could rotate and, mm-hmm. and find the satellites. There weren't that many satellites. I could get the live feeds of the Chicago Racing at home. They they would live feed it to uh, uh, off-track betting places, and I'd just pick up the live feeds so I could watch the races. I could handicap the races, try to predict the winners, not bet, just on paper. When I thought I had a system, I had, I had what I call a class system. <laughs> when I thought I had a system that worked, then I started to bet. But also in that year, I decided to visit, I, I wanted to visit every racetrack in the United States. But eh, that was, I was living in Chicago, that was too far. So I visited almost all racetracks east of the Mississippi. Which is got to be a lot. 100. No, it was 35, 40, something okay. like that. I just got, I just alone, I did it alone. I went to Saratoga a couple of times. I drove to Florida three times. Stop at every track on the way. Different tracks have different racing dates. I went out to the East Coast and just hit all the tracks. I just wanted to see them and, and see what the system was. And uh, Anyway, in handicapping, uh, there, there are certain rules in handicapping. Uh, we were talking about horses and what makes a horse run. Why does a horse run? One rule is cheap horses can't beat good horses, and they know it. Mm. They know it. You know how much they were paid? They know know what they're worth. They know their worth. Mm. You put a a good horse that runs in grade one races against a faster, cheap horse who runs in claiming races, they will not run. What? They won't. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's incredible, but... Uh, cheap they, horses. Do you think they communicate with each other? I, I mean, th- how, I, how I think they... the good horse looks the cheap horse in the eye and says, "I'm going to beat you in the, in the paddock before they're on the track," and the, and the and the horse gives up. I think the horse gives up. I I've, I'm telling you, <clears throat> that's that's the theory behind class handicapping. You bet on the best horse in the race if he's fit and ready. That good horse has to be fit and ready. He has to be able to be able to beat the, the cheap horse, but the cheap horse will fold every time. It, it's just the way it is. Believe me. All right, all right. So, <laughs> is there a way you can tell how much the horse was paid? Oh yeah, all that information is in the form. Okay. What the stud fee was, uh, if they were bought at auction, what what was paid. Uh, there's so much data in there, it's incredible. But uh, I spent a year uh, betting, and at the end of the year decided, I don't think I can make a living doing it. I thought I might be able to make a living. Some, <laughs> hey, some people do. Yeah. Not very many, but there are guys that are professional handicappers and professional bettors. And guys in Hong Kong that own the racetrack and fix every race. Guys in, yeah, in Bangkok, yeah. <laughs> That's not you, though. Yeah, I've I've been to tracks all over the world. Every time I go somewhere, I've been in tracks in Greece and the U.K. and uh, uh, 
Ireland, in Australia, in Hong Kong, many times, Thailand. Uh, every, every time I go somewhere, if there's a track, I will go. I'll make time to go. Uh, just, just for fun, mm-hmm. just to see the, just to see what goes on there, and uh, and it's fun. Well, that's the tip that everyone can take with them: bet the most expensive horse. Yes, if he's fit and ready. If he's fit and ready, yeah. I don't know how many horse gamblers we got listening to the show, <laughs> but you know, I enjoy the yeah. Kentucky Derby, yeah. and you know, I'll come over to your house and watch it. You know, and we'll throw twenty bucks on some horses right. for the fun of it. Um, but I definitely will not be making a living from, no. uh, <laughs> from, no. from horse betting. So, um, but I'm going to take that next time we do it and we'll see what happens. Um, you know, so that was 86 in the late eighties and that's when you got into the rubber business right. and, you know, spent the latter part of your career traveling back and forth from Asia. Right. And, you know, you've taught me a lot about rubber is not all rubber is created equal, um, you know, we, we've gotten bands from a company called Rogue Fitness that right. is a big supplier in our industry for all kinds of things, from rigs to jump ropes to <clears throat> rubber bands. And their bands will last for years. Right. Ten, we've had bands for eight years, right. and they're still going. We bought bands from another company, which I won't say their name, a weekend, snap. Right. And it's like, what? in the world is happening with these bands it's not happening with these bands and you explained to me not all rubber is equal right so just explain that real quick so people know what they're buying well it's hard nobody tells you what the rubber content is uh typically in a pair of rubber boots the rubber content natural rubber content is less than 50 percent uh and the rest of it is filler it's i don't just uh, filler to take up in the compound to take up space chemicals and I don't know what what chemical names they are but the key is the rubber content in the case of rubber bands there, there's a chemical that has to be added that reduces the susceptibility to ozone deterioration when they turn white when they turn white, that's called blooming, which means the compounding was, the, the vulcanization was wrong. Mm. It was the wrong temperature or pressure. But if you stress rubber, you stretch it or compress it, if it doesn't have dec- decadron in it, it'll crack. If you stress rubber, it'll crack. Uh, you never want to store rubber under stress. In other words, if you store the rubber band in a stretched condition, you'll destroy it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard to tell from the consumer standpoint what, what you're getting in a rubber product. Because uh, it, it doesn't say on the package. It doesn't. This is, it doesn't give you the rubber content. It's just by reputation. By reputation. And the cheaper it is, the cheaper it is. Yeah. Generally. Yep. Exactly. Yep. That's why we bought those bands five <laughs> oh, years cheap. ago. Yeah. yeah. Oh, these are half the price. Yeah. Let's get those. And then whap, someone gets smacked in the back of the leg, flossing their hamstring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's no good. So, you know, a lot of people probably don't understand where rubber comes from and why Southeast Asia is where you would always have to go to get that done. But I guess there's rubber trees. Rubber trees. Yeah. Rubber comes from rubber tree, rubber plants, but they're, they're big. They're trees. It's a sap that runs out of a tree, a lot like maple sap. It's collected in, in uh, buckets. It, it, it's, it's a liquid. Uh, 
it's most of the rubber is uh, grown in uh, Malaysia, some in Sri Lanka, a little bit in, in southern China, but M- Malaysia is where where it is. Uh, there used to be huge rubber plantations in Brazil. Uh, Henry Ford built a huge industry down in uh, in central Brazil for tires. Or? For tires, actually, yes, absolutely for tires. That that industry's gone, but all the rubber comes from Malaysia. There's none none in the U.S. We don't have the climate. The climate, yeah. The climate, yeah. So, you know, where it's air, you know. Air, air humidity is probably 90%. Right. 300 days out of the year. Right. That's where the plant thrives. Correct. Correct. So equa- anywhere along the equator, probably. Right. Close to the equator. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Well, um, you know, I don't know if there's anything that you want to share from, from that aspect of your life. You know, the last 20 years of your career. Uh, um, really. You know, I mean, that's... I know you, you flew a lot and met a lot of great people, a lot of great businessmen in China. Um, that you're still uh, friends with today. I am. I, in fact, uh, uh, I went to the Shot Show uh, in January in Las Vegas. I try to get up there every every year to the Shot and see people I used to do business with. I'll just go for two nights, a couple of days, and uh, uh, see the Taiwanese and Korean and Chinese people that I used to do business with. I did that this year, had a nice dinner with a friend of mine in Beijing. Uh, we talked about the possibility of, he's the wall walker, the, the guy that hikes the wall. Yeah, I got to do that. Uh, I, that's one yeah. of my, man, I, I want to do it with Carlin, you know, with my kids, yeah. get them all strapped up, go yeah. walk the wall. That's the Great Wall of China. That's the Great Wall. You know, it's how many miles? Thirteen hundred miles. Or yeah, it's eighteen hundred miles long. But eighteen hundred miles. We talked about possibly going this fall or some fall. Some October is the best time to go. I'd love to go and do a two or three day walk, overnight or two nights. That's what he does typically. I mean, it just absolutely fascinates me. Yeah. That wall. Yeah. Yeah. They, they it's can amazing. Build that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's a wall walker. Does in, it's something he did in the past, or he still does? He it? still does. He yeah. still does. This guy's incre- is, is is quite a guy. He uh, he climbed Kilimanjaro. He climbed most of the big peaks. He didn't climb uh, Everest. Didn't climb K two. But he was thinking about doing Everest uh, this year or next year. But he thought it was too risky. You know. It's, How old is he? He's 50, 44 years old. Oh, okay. I've known him since he was 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so 44, I mean, that's that's not too bad, but no. I think that it's so busy now. that. Oh, you mean uh, Everest. Yeah, Everest. Yeah, it's very, very dangerous, yeah. Yeah. So he decided not to do it because it's too high risk and he's it's irresponsible. To, mm-hmm. If he was single, he's got two kids, yeah, it's nice tough. wife. Well, he's got a nice wife. If she was mean, he might take the risk. He might do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right on. Well, you know, uh, again, we could probably keep going about that career for another half hour or so. But I think that for today, we'll start, you know, kind of wrapping up with talking about, uh, you know, the plank. And I know we, we talked about it a little bit last episode. Yeah. Um, about, hey, I want to do this. Uh, let's set out. First plank was 32 seconds. Uh, and then we worked up to a 10 minute plank 
um, by periodized planking, you know, just going a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And uh, now we just recently last month did a 15 minute plank. Right. Which, as far as we know, is a 80-year-old and older world record. Yes. Because we've never found anyone to do one longer. Right. And the one guy we did find that did 11 minutes hasn't... We, you've been in contact with his coach yeah, his, back and forth, but he's not coming with a 15-minuter. He's not. No, he... Uh, but his coach uh, did say, hey, good job, and essentially, you have the record, but we're coming at you or something like that. Get ready for something else. Yeah, get ready for something. But so, he did that 11-minute or a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if he hasn't been training, but we're training with the weight vest now. Right. Um, you know, you, your protocol today was four three-minute long planks with 90-second rest in between uh, with a 20-pound weight vest on, which is... Hard. hard. I mean, it it's hard. hard. Yeah. Like, I don't think people can really understand that. That's why I've done the, the long plank test. But just to do one three-minute body weight plank for most human individuals is going to be an accomplishment. To do four in one training session after back squatting, after benching um, at 81 years old is just, again, it's a remarkable feat on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so how do you feel about that? I mean, I know there's going to be an end point because the training is arduous, but yeah. how do you feel? What are we, we're going to go for 20 minutes or? Well, I, right now what I'd like to do is uh, uh, keep this training regimen until after the national powerlifting meet in October. And let's say mid-October, do another max effort, whatever that is. After the after nationals, after nationals, let's say the week after, just get down and see how far I can go and and retire. And next year, January one, I'm looking for something new. We talked a little bit about a bench. I mean, a push up routine. Mm-hmm. Maybe try to do. 82 push-ups you know, yeah you as know a goal. you see the, <laughs> the problem with the push-up is it's so subjective i mean you see people doing push-ups yeah. or burpees yeah. and it's not anywhere close to what i would consider either movement um so we've got to find a standard if we're going to do push-ups yeah um you know something that this is the bottom this is the top and that's it you yeah. know there's yeah. no ambiguity to it so yeah or um olympic weightlifting well, uh, yeah. That, oh, I'm definitely. I definitely would like to do that yeah. next next year. I would. I would like to. We did, I, as you know, we did. We did. We had a pass at it. Oh, two or three months, or I don't know, six months ago. Mm-hmm. But I think I think I'm in better shape now, and I think I can do it. I really think I can do it. I'd like to try it. I'm thinking about retiring from powerlifting. Just retire after nationals. After nationals. Take up this Olympic lifting, and maybe, uh, uh, you know, if I'm ready, just jump in and do a meet, uh, because I wouldn't lose anything, really. Might not, might lose some bench, might, might have to stay with that. Yeah. But you wouldn't, know, wouldn't lose a squat or the deadlift, right? Not with, not with only lifting. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it would, it would vary a little bit. You know, the training is different, but... 
in your case, we talked about it, about flexibility, you know, is your thoracic flexibility is getting those shoulders back behind to receive the snatch. That's what we'd be working on. And we'd have to get you, you know, dialed in for that. But other than that, you're ready. I mean, you're always ready for a meet. Yeah. I mean, I could, I can give me a week. I'll get you ready for a meet, (laughs) you know? So the other um, thing is that the records are low over 80. Oh yeah. Did you did you look at them? I mean the 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 movements are way harder. Way harder. Yeah. You know, there's that that meme. You know what a meme is? Uh, mm. Yeah, you do. When there's like a joke on Instagram. Yeah, I showed it to you the other day about the powerlifter and the Olympic weightlifter. Uh, oh. Where it's that Seinfeld episode, and there oh. George is looking at Jerry, and he says, "What's the difference between me and you?" And it has George as a powerlifter, and then Jerry as a weightlifter. He <laughs> says. Well, we're pretty much the same. I'm just better. <laughs> Olympic weightlifters think they're better than powerlifters because the movements are much harder uh-huh. um, to execute. Yeah. Uh, are they better? No, but that's that's the mentality. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, I'd like to try something different. Uh, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah. Keep it going. Add to that uh, little bundle of national badges I got going on over there. Yeah, right. Um, all right, my man. Well, I really appreciate the time again, Mikey, and I hope everyone listening enjoyed it. And uh, we'll maybe have you back on um, when we get that next pursuit going to keep everybody updated on what you got going on. Sounds good. All right. Anything else? That's it. All right, guys. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Appreciate you listening. Next time. <laughs>